You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Twitter and Facebook warn of potentially malicious software development kits being used by app developers to potentially harvest and monetize users' data. Nursing homes affected by a third-party ransomware incident receive extortion demands that amount to some $14 million. The Hollywood Reporter retails skeptical musings about the Sony Pictures hack on the fifth anniversary of the North Korean attack. And CISA offers advice for safe holiday shopping. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, November 26, 2019. Facebook and Twitter warned yesterday that users may have unwittingly compromised personal information to two data harvesting apps downloaded from Google Play, Giant Square and Photofy by developers One Audience and Mobaburn, reports CNBC. Facebook ejected the apps from its platform and issued appropriate cease and desist letters. The social network says the companies encourage developers to use malicious software developer kits. Mobaburn has said that it didn't collect, share, or monetize data collected from Facebook. It did, the company said, facilitate the process by introducing app developers to companies that monetize data. Mobaburn says that while it doesn't regard this as problematic, it stopped doing so. Twitter calls out one audience as having used a potentially malicious software development kit. The platform says it's notifying users whose data may have been harvested and that it's told both Google and Apple about the likelihood that this SDK has found its way into apps available in their respective stores. Nursing homes affected by a ransomware attack against Virtual Care Provider, a company that provides the care facilities with a range of IT and security services, have received their ransom demands. Those demands, CBS News says, amount to a total of $14 million. The infection vector appears to have been a protracted series of phishing emails carrying malicious attachments. The U.S. Department of Energy has released its Inspector General's unclassified evaluation of the department's cybersecurity program. The inspectors found a variety of familiar recurring issues at energy installations, including several facilities managed by the National Nuclear Security Administration. Among those issues is a persistent failure to patch, a vulnerability management system that struggles to address high-risk, high-priority vulnerabilities, 
and unsupported software being run on endpoints and in networks. In sum, the IG recommended 54 improvements that the department should undertake to improve its cybersecurity posture, and the department's leaders agreed with all of them. Sony Pictures was hacked five years ago this week. Principal responsibility for the attack was widely and convincingly attributed by the U.S. government and others to the North Korean government. But the Hollywood Reporter recounts skepticism from film business people who were around Sony Pictures at the time who continue to wonder what happened. The U.S. Department of Justice issued a statement about accused Lazarus Group figure Park Jing-hyuk for his role in the Sony attack and other capers. Big targets may attract a lot of people's attention, but the skepticism about North Korean involvement in the Sony Pictures hack seems mostly a priori. It's really tough to prove a negative, but there seems little reason to think the U.S. Department of Justice got this one wrong. Apple's iOS mobile operating system generally has a good reputation when it comes to security, and part of that comes from Apple's limiting what users are able to do and see on the OS. For those who want to see and do more, there's jailbreaking, circumventing Apple's access limitations. Sam Bakken is from security company OneSpan, and he says app developers need to be mindful of jailbreaks. Really what jailbreaking your device is, is it's essentially you're compromising your device, right? You are sort of sidestepping some built-in security functionalities built into iOS that keep users safe. Um, And so developers really need to consider the fact that there may be some number of jailbroken iOS devices accessing their apps. And so, you know, there's a couple of different ways uh, that their apps might be affected by this. For one, attackers will use a jailbroken device um, because it gives them a little bit more access into the internals of iOS and could allow them to kind of poke and prod apps in a way that they're not capable of on a non-jailbroken app. And so developers need to take steps to make sure that they're kind of obfuscating their code Um, They're using white box cryptography and a number of technologies to make sure that attackers are slowed down in trying to analyze their apps and potentially find vulnerabilities within them. So that's one. Um, You know, secondarily, they may have consumers, you know, regular users, they're sort of power users of iOS that still jailbreak their phone. Um, And this is a little bit more common in markets sort of outside of the United States. Jailbreaking phones in the U.S. just isn't quite as popular as it is elsewhere. But, you know, in, you know, APAC, uh, it's a little bit more popular. And so banks want to actually provide some services to people that have jailbroken their phone, because otherwise those people might go to another bank um, that does allow them to use the mobile banking app. Really what it boils down to, to simplify, is developers should kind of assume that their app will be installed in sort of potentially hostile environments. So, you know, whether whatever the prevalence of that is, you know, who knows? It depends on your market. But just, you know, start from the beginning thinking, hey, this app could be put on a bad device that's jailbroken and could be at risk. So let me apply security protection such as what's called in-app protection, also called app shielding, which kind of monitors the runtime of the app itself so that if there's anything malicious going on, if there's any kind of odd seeming uh, sort of poking and prodding of that app, it monitors for that, it detects it, and then it can take action on it. So it can say, I don't like the looks of this. This might be fraud. So let me shut that down. And so you might shut down the app 
in total, or you might limit some of the functionality that's available. So there are ways as a developer that, that I can sort of uh, test to see if uh, perhaps the device I'm running on has been jailbroken? Uh, yes, there are multiple sort of ways to go about deciding whether or not the app is executing on a jailbroken device. Um, some more uh, sort of involved than others, but there's any sort of number of, of clues that this might be happening. But yes, there are tools that can be uh, integrated into the app that say, hey, is this running on a jailbroken device, which is a potentially hostile environment? And then it's a business decision whether or not you let the app actually execute on those devices. That's Sam Bakken from OneSpan. It's just two days before the more or less official beginning of the holiday season, marked by the U.S. holiday of Thanksgiving this Thursday. The holiday season is also the shopping season, and the more or less official beginning of that season is this Friday, Black Friday, which is used to denote the day the Great Depression started in 1929, but now ironically names a day of big sales, bargains galore, doorbuster specials, and so on. Anywho, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has issued some advice on how to shop safely during the holiday season. It's good advice, short advice, and grouped under three convenient headings. First, check your devices. Make sure the software on them is up to date. And check the accounts on them. Do you have strong passwords? You should. And you shouldn't reuse those passwords. If the accounts offer multi-factor authentication, use it. Second, shop through trustworthy sources, the sites you know that are reputable, not, let's say, Crazy Joe's Nuthouse site of huge online bargains, which you've never heard of, but hey, just popped up and that looks pretty good. Steer clear of the dodgy and the unfamiliar, and be aware that crooks will spoof legitimate sites. Look at the URL. That's not foolproof, but it's not a bad practice. And remember that phishing con artists will be sending out special offers during this season, too, don't follow the links and emails unless you're sure of where they go. And don't provide personal information, especially credentials or pay card data. Third, and finally, use safe methods of payment. Credit cards are always better than debit cards and much, much better than using wire transfers. Keep an eye on your credit card statements and alert your card provider at once if you suspect fraud. So there's CISA's advice for holiday shopping. Check it out at cisa.gov slash shop hyphen safely. Have you noticed a sad fact of holiday creep? We have. We're ashamed to say that right here in Greater Baltimore, our shopping desk noticed that Halloween candy went on sale at a local supermarket during the first week of August. And that's just not right. And there's forward creep as well as backward creep. We confidently predict that after the New Year celebrations have succeeded Hanukkah and Christmas... We're going to be prepped for Valentine's Day with a short detour around the hemi-demi-semi-official American civic holiday of the Super Bowl. But there's a silver lining to all of this. Go back to CISA's advice on shopping safely. It applies 24-7, 365 days a year, 366 during leap year. So shop if you must, and you know you will, but please shop safely. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. 
Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Justin Harvey. He's the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Justin, it's always great to have you back. Um, I, I want to touch base today about smart cities and how making our cities smarter might mean that we also need to up our cybersecurity game as well. That's exactly right. Uh, there are many new types of services that are being uh, developed, whether it be uh, advanced traffic light uh, signaling and the ability to control traffic lights on a citywide basis. There's water and power, jail systems, public transportation. And what has been discovered within the last decade is the internet protocol, maybe it's not so bad when it's controlling other types of, of operations. It's a great signaling and transportation protocol. And unfortunately, what's happened is all of these new types of services that are being developed in, uh, in, in management systems that are using the internet protocol, many times people don't realize that A, it does eventually connect up to the internet, and B, they are susceptible to attack from adversaries, uh, regardless if it is an air-gapped network or not. Many of my clients say, well, we have a great air-gapped system. Uh, and then, of course, we run our red team operations. And in about 80% of the cases, uh, they find a way in through the air-gap, sometimes through maintenance uh, hmm. connections, sometimes through engineers that connect up to that air-gap network. So there are paths uh, to access those. Uh, something that strikes me is, you know, say for example, I have all of my um, all of my city's lighting is is automated and hooked up to some sort of smart city system. In that case, if I want to take my city dark, I don't have to knock out the the power generation facilities. I may be able to just throw the switch and turn off all the lights. That's exactly right. And any time that a digital system can affect the kinetic or affect the real world, uh, there is susceptibility to tampering and to uh, inciting chaos or inciting real world physical damage. So it's important that when cities consider this, they consider two things. The first is 
I think that they should build up to this iteratively, which means having a very strong core, which means developing defense in depth techniques with their own non-kinetic digital systems, accounting, tax revenue generation, digital records for their criminal justice system, and really work up to that. Because we've seen, Dave, uh, I think we even mentioned this a few weeks ago about more and more cities and states that are, are being held for ransom through ransomware. So it's important that you start with a firm base and you work up to that. Uh, in fact, I think uh, probably the first kinetic system that they that cities should probably start to take a look at is the smart grid. Um, and the reason I say smart grid is that there are already utility providers doing this. It's proven. There are mature security standards, mature systems, and they could also probably see some additional funding avenues through working with in partnership with a commercial organization like a utility uh, provider. Uh, the second thing that they need to think about is having proper funding. I cannot stress this enough. There needs to be proper funding around not only the technology and the telemetry and the transportation and setup of this, but these are very large operations that will be in probably in place for for decades. So it's important to have proper funding. And many times that does mean going back to uh, the public who are voting with their wallets and saying, we want to do this. And this is going to be the tax implications. This is how much tax revenue uh, we need to do that, which will, of course, fund properly trained people, a security operations center, and additional technology and telemetry that will be necessary to do this in a safe and responsible manner. Yeah, it's a really interesting insight that this requires the input from so many different departments around the city. In other words, it's not just facilities people putting up new streetlights. Suddenly you, you've got data flowing that could be connected to all sorts of other parts of the city. That's exactly right, Dave. Recently, I was in New York City for the Aspen Cyber Summit, and Jeff Brown, who is the CISO uh, and head of the New York City Cyber Command, made some great points in saying that New York City in particular is all digital, and it is all about safeguarding these digital systems, or his department is safeguarding these digital systems that are susceptible to attack. And I think that New York City has a great uh, attitude and idea about this in the sense that it's all about managing the threat and providing these key services and key uptimes to their citizens. But the only way that they are able to do this successfully is through building a strong base, creating a security operations center, uh, working closely with law enforcement, and then, of course, having adequate funding in order to roll these services out on an iterative basis. So my hat's off to to Jeff Brown in, in New York City on this one. All right. Well, Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber.
And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.